Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Episode 15, The Dark Phoenix. Welcome to the Great Expectations Podcast. I am your secondary host, Sean. <laughs> and I am your primary host, Gerald McDade. And we are joined with special guests because Jerry and I can't be in the same room together without trying to kill each other. So we had to bring in a mediator. So please welcome to the show again, Super Steve Breaker. Hey. <laughs> and he's also here with Kermit the Frog. Hi-ho. <laughs> And we are here to discuss. Oh, I hope it's something I've read. <laughs> Marvel fanfare number one through four. Uh, now I gotta find that episode. Yeah, we're here to discuss the Dark Phoenix saga, part two, part two, part Dukes, an Allenless Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, in honor of Alan. Where you at, Alan? Just hanging out with Emma Frost. Hello, bitch. <laughs> well, of all the things you could have called me about and said, hey, uh, at the last minute, can you join us and uh, talk about something off the cuff? You picked a good one here. I like that you left a Boy Scout troop stranded in the wilderness so you could come and join us. That's <laughs> yeah, all part of their training. Somewhere in Steve's backpack, a red phone, <laughs> the X phone rang, and he answered the call. Should we share with people why Steve's here today? Sure. Or do we want to just uh, pretend like this was planned all along? No. Because I feel like, Steve, you deserve extra credit for doing this at the last minute. You do. I don't want people to feel like you were an afterthought. (laughs) Especially you. That is true. It's just uh, we set this thing up with Marco Rudy and asked him what he wanted to talk about and Predictably, he said, the Dark Phoenix saga, of course. And since that's where we were in the reread, we figured, let's have him now. <clears throat> Only, he's too busy drawing a Doctor Strange miniseries, Steven. What? Is, are you allowed to say that? I think, yeah, he's been posting art on uh, Facebook. Okay. So I think it's okay. Okay. But I well, don't know if any of this is staying in the episode. Are we keeping this in the episode? You should, uh, it's just one long beep. Just that old bitch, that old bitch. <laughs> yeah, that's captivating. <laughs> I would listen to an hour and a half of Alan saying that. I know you would. So where are you up to then? Previously on X-Men. So to catch everybody up really quickly because... I don't know why they would have skipped the last episode, because it was one of our very best. But uh, the X-Men, after facing down Proteus, uh, 
got a new member in Kitty Pride. Tried to recruit Dazzler, she said no, and they had their first encounter with the Hellfire Club. In the form of Emma Frost. Oh, bitch. X-Men! So, uh, issue 132 is written by Chris Claremont, and John Byrne gets a co-plotter credit, which he... If you listen to him, he, he really thinks he did the whole thing all by himself. So Chris Claremont was around to put letters on paper somewhere at some point. But this is a John Byrne production. Uh, Terry Austin got paid money to do nothing. And <laughs> there was a letterer, I think, and a colorist maybe. I don't know. And it was edited. And the letterer <laughs> kept asking Claremont to write less words. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Which he did. There are fewer words here than when he first started, which is, you know. The, this is also um, the first issue of the short-lived uh, editorial run that Jim Salakrup had as Funcanny X-Men editor, bridging um, Roger Stern and uh, Louise uh, Jones uh, Simonson. That's right. And he's fortunate, while he was unsuccessful, in his his uh, tenure as editor, he was fortunate to latch on to probably the coolest. Yeah, talk X-Men about story. fucking mic drop moment. He's yeah. just like, all right, I'll drop in here for the greatest story ever told. See ya. And, and a story that had been started and was rolling, and he'd leave at the uh, finale. So, right, that, that's a pretty easy job, I think. Seriously, six <laughs> issues, six issues, and he's just like, see you guys later. Right out of the gate, though, on the second page already in this, we're going to hit Jerry's favorite topic. But before we get to that, I don't know about you guys, but I don't understand how come when I come over here to record, Jerry, that your wife doesn't greet me the same way that Jean greets Warren. Well, I don't have a good answer other than I keep her really tired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she doesn't have time for you, Sean. That was awesome. You know that is I mean. a creepy kiss. I I think Warren is the second luckiest guy in the world. Gets a smooch from Gene, and then his girl, his only girl, Candy Southern, shows up wearing... I can't really call it clothes. Is that Jerry's <laughs> comic crush for this issue? I'll Not even say... so much Candy Southern, but just... uh. The tip-top part of that panel? The whole panel is working for me, guys. I really like that sequence, how it's, you can, you know, they they show Warren kissing Gene, and then you see not right exact, you know, the the panel doesn't cut exactly where his back and his wing is, but the rest of the wings are assumed in the gutter. You just get the back of his wing with Candy behind him doing the, hey now, who you kissing kind of. Even hands on the hips, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put a smile on the face, because she knows Warren's a playboy, right? Yeah, and she's rocking. She's got nothing to be She's been in this situation Nothing to be before. ashamed of. And That's right. Warner's for the long haul, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, they make it a good ways. There's got to be a breakup issue there somewhere. I just don't we'll know what it is. the apocalypse. Do you think, it, yeah, it's got to happen in X-Factor, doesn't it? I would think so. I'm trying to think if Candy Southern... She's there at Follow the Mutants. But I'm trying to think if Candy Southern is the woman who is eventually, like, killed by Cameron Hodge. Sounds likely. When he's assimilated by the Phalanx, like, 
this is like early 300s, like 310, right. 311, like right before Gene and Scott got married, there was like a one and done issue that I loved, which was like Gene and Warren hanging out. Yeah, hanging finishing out. Finishing off this panel. Uh-huh. And uh Candy shows up, but but you know what, actually, she was supposed to be dead already, because when she showed up, they were like, what the fuck? What are you doing But here? it turned out she was just flanks. Which we'll get into ten years from now. Yeah, you will. I'll be fine. I'm just yeah. kidding. Yep. I'm just kidding. This oh. is what's going to happen, folks. I'm going to trudge along through Jerry's childhood, reliving this sad bastard's existence, <laughs> and we're going to get to the juicy stuff that I actually know about. Uh, and he's going to be like, "Sean, we hit our stride when we had Alan and Steve back to back. It's time to close up shop. <laughs> Turn off the lights on your way out." The don't basement ever, is closed. Don't ever come back here. My son <laughs> hates you. <laughs> True story. It's funny that you would have me back for this uh, topic, actually, in this issue, because one of the other notable scene that happens uh, while they're rendezvousing with the angel up in his uh, mountain airy is uh, we get that scene of Scott and Gene up on the um, you know stone pillar having their picnic moment there where they... Uh, Claremont tries to undo the lousy, uh, you know, rap that Cyclops took for not being, um, you know, more emotional when he thought Gene died back in those Savage Land issues that we talked about. Right. Life just worked out for you to be here, Steve. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Full circle, man. This is one of my favorite moments in in this whole run. The whole Claremont burn run. I just, that page. I want to say, 132 is the first issue I read as a kid. Like wow. this, this is, this is my introduction to the X-Men. You read the words or you were just looking at the pictures? No, I read the words. I read the words and, and it's cool, you know, right in the middle of the story, I, I, I still knew what was going on, you know, and that's, that's the upside to writing all these words. Is uh, it, he gives you a chance to get up to speed in the first few pages. Yep. But every um, comic might be someone's first. Yep. That's right. So don't that's do exactly that right. Don't make them like this anymore. That was the nope. shooter mandate. And I don't want to say this was my first comic, but this was my first X Men comic. Right. Nice. I always thought that was I'm completely wrong because I think that Angel Where's Angel's Place, Colorado? This is in New Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico, I think. Because I always thought that the, the stone pillar thing that they were on was Devil's Tower. <laughs> nah, my mashed potatoes don't stand up that tall. <laughs> and I'm carving them with my fork. <laughs> so your first X-Men story had this cool Logan and Wolverine hanging out in the sewers. That's awesome. Uh, Nightcrawler and Wolverine, oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Did I say Logan and Wolverine? That's fine. I knew who you meant, because I'm looking at the page. But for our listeners, yes. What a cool move to have Logan, like, cut the wires just enough so when the water rises, he keeps playing it ahead. So good. It's so good, man. And even though when he does it, I'm thinking, no one could do that. I still love it. Wolverine could do that. No one else. But sure, one swipe of the claws, he just strips off the insulation on the wires. Why not? And they're the stealth. 
um, approach while the rest of the gang are uh, going to one of the Hellfire Club's uh, artsy-fartsy, hoity-toity, uh, you know, dinner party kind of things, all dressed to the nines. I find it cool, just as a, like, moment between Jerry and I, that your first issue was them dressing up to the nines to go to a Hellfire Club, and one of my first X-Men issues was 281, which has them dressing up and going to the Hellfire Club. Well, how about that? Well, I think maybe you guys are going to be stepping out tonight, aren't you? <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry you had to get stuck in the middle of this, Steve. <laughs> not dressed up. <laughs> I'm wearing sweatpants and pajama bottoms, if that helps. It's pretty hot. It's like we're seven years into our relationship. Yeah. Now, the Hellfire Club cast, did you talk about with Alan where these characters and names and things come from? I wish that I had known because I would have loved to discuss it with Alan. And I think I don't know if Alan's aware of it or not. But um, this is something I just discovered today while reading the, what was it, the... X-Men Companion. Yes, Volume 2. From way back, from Fantagraphics. <laughs> I think it was published in 82. And uh, there was there was an interview with John Byrne, and they were discussing um, what what people in real life inspired some of the characters that he drew. And I've tweeted some of them tonight before we started recording. But... um. He, he stole likenesses, and not only that, but used parts of their names in some cases. As little clues, right? Yeah. So, I mean, do we want to go into who is who? Yes. At least Jason Wingard, because that's the, the, the big important one, since that's possibly not, or possibly is, Mastermind's real name, right? Never really been decided for sure. But... That he combined because of the Hellfire Club name themselves comes from the old Emma Peel, um, Diana Rigg, uh, you know, played Emma Peel in the old Avengers black and white, uh, British serial. Uh, they had an episode where they fought a Hellfire Club. And both John and Chris, uh, Byrne and Claremont both had uh, seen this episode before they, uh, decided to insert them into X-Men lore. And they took an actor whose last name was Wingard, Peter Wingard, and they took that name, last name, and the same actor's first name on a show that he later played where he was like Jason King or something like that. That's right. And made Jason Wingard out of it. Ta-da! That's awesome. I say that's awesome a lot. And Emma <laughs> Frost is Emma Peel from, uh, you know, from the old Avengers also. Her name came from that um, source. And... Uh, Burn, without looking her up, tried to actually even draw her kind of like he envisioned Diana Rigg. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, he mentions that Donald Pierce was based on Donald Sutherland. And I don't really see that likeness so much, but uh, I guess it's more of a, you know, a starting point for a character like that. And then Harry Leland is a spitting image of Orson Welles. Yeah, he is. In tights. <laughs> Hot damn. How about Sebastian Shaw? He's still around. He is. He was based on Robert Shaw, the great and formidable actor. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living. 
How cool would a Robert Shaw, Sebastian Shaw been? It would have been real cool. <laughs> oh, I can kind of see the Donald Sutherland thing. Do you? A little bit in that particular panel. He was the one where where I really was like, I just don't see it. Got to mix a little kefir in there. <laughs> a little bit of kefir, yeah. Uh, so later in the interview, he starts going into uh, some of the other likenesses for the, the X-Men themselves. And the one that really got me was um, Jean Grey. When he first started drawing her, he was using Raquel Welch. Definitely when she turns into the Black Queen. I mean, it's obvious once he sticks that... <laughs> you know, yeah. the mole on her face. Uh-huh. For sure. I knew there was a reason I was so attracted to her. That's it. Who else? Oh, oh yeah. Colossus. This is the one where I was like, oh yeah. Colossus is Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, they told him to move away from there. <laughs> So this X-Men infiltration into the Hellfire Club's uh, dinner party, uh, despite Jean's uh, unbelievably uh, um, painted-on um, turtleneck dress, a redhead in a black turtleneck dress with diamond cutaways in the front and the back, um, just stunning, and Mastermind doesn't waste any time in asserting his control over her to the point of even um, showing Cyclops' true face and being like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the jig is up at that point. Hey, I just yeah. want to mention, uh, we did this off mic earlier, but I just noticed um, tonight when you mentioned the dress before, this is a kind of reminiscent of the dress that she wore on their night out on the night that she became the Phoenix. And it's interesting to me that it's mirrored here on the night when she becomes Dark Phoenix. Bum, bum, bum. Some smart cats, man. Yeah. But so, first, she's got to become the Black Queen. Yes, she does. Hurry, quick. So, um, yeah, so so Jason Wingard just moves in while uh, Jean and Scott are dancing, cuts in, whisks her away into her little fantasy world in the past. And, and Scott is just like, uh, Jean? What? She's gone. Wingard walks off with her. Scott tries to follow. They turn a corner and they're gone. And the next thing you know, Scott is blasted, laying on the floor. And there's the Black Queen standing over him. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty brutal how the X-Men are taken down. The scene of Shaw um, catching Storm out of the air by her ankle. And he's, like, kicking at him and he just flips her over. Puts her arm like way high up against the back of her back, so she's like face down against the floor, and then just pounds her with uh, what looks like you know no, uh, he wasn't holding back on that blow at all. Um, it's brutal. Yeah, these guys are scary. Yeah, I mean you you don't have any idea what they're capable of, but they show you really quickly that they're really dangerous. Now, when you said Robert Shaw before for. Sebastian Shaw, it makes me think of uh, Jaws, which makes me think of one of the big um, uh, turning points in Jaws, the big aha, oh, I forgot that, a big sleight of hand that happens where um, Dreyfus is, uh, you know, hiding under the coral, 
and then you forget all about him, right? Uh-huh. He pops up again later in the movie, and you're like, oh, yeah, Trifus, he was still alive. <laughs> um, similarly, during the skirmish here, Wolverine gets taken completely out of the picture by the gravity-controlling uh, Leland. And then we get one of the greatest sequences uh, of our childhoods uh, to end the issue. Yeah, oh, man. So basically, Leland's got control of gravity. He makes Wolverine super heavy, and he drops through the floor into the sewers, which is the, the path that Wolverine and Nightcrawler used to get into the building. Um, and he, you think he's washed away by floodwaters, but it turns out they just made him angry. And he rises out of the water, crunches a pipe with his bare hand, and then you just see this badass half-page splash of him Okay, suckers, you've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. And this has got to be the most iconic panel he drew for the X-Men. Yeah. Right after all the brutality that we just described. And then the top of the page is them literally lifting up their golden chalices in triumph. And then you get, you know, the answer. The the cosmic scales balanced here. That's right. They're brutal, and now we're going to get a brutal Wolverine finally unleashed. Yep. Interesting um, discussion in some of those interviews I was reading about the nature of Wolverine. Claremont was saying that they kept undercutting him as he was writing the character. He'd be not savage enough, and then he was too savage, and then not savage enough. So he was always, like, riding this razor's edge, trying to make him violent but not crazy. Yeah. And I think, I think in these issues you see the very best of that. And whether they knew it or not, we're going to see um, the beginnings of him being that careful, stealth, almost ninja-like. You know, uh, we don't really know about his Japanese heritage here, but mm-hmm. um, you could easily look back and look, he's demonstrating it. Yeah, issue because one. Wolverine alone. <laughs> Which I... is the title of the next issue, 133. Now, really quick, um, I know that... Because one of the things that actually got me to go back and read this, because when I started reading, this would have been, like, far too expensive for me to get in single issues at that point in my life. But they did the cartoon as, like, a week-long, like, after school. I think one of yeah. them was even in prime time, but it was, like, a week-long thing. And the adapt- Six episodes. Yeah, right? like the, yeah, I think and it might have, like, ended on Saturday or something. Yep. But... I just watched these recently with my kiddo. Okay, so were they or were they not, like, ridiculous? I mean, other than, like, them jamming a couple of the 90s characters in where they shouldn't have been, it's a really good adaptation. Uh, yeah, it has its charm. You get, Charms to it. You get Dazzler. You get the Wolverine alone thing. You can't yeah. exactly stab Hellfire Club agents in the... I just always thought it was interesting, because everybody, you know, once the movies came out, they immediately wanted them to go to Dark Phoenix Saga. And it's like, everybody makes fun of the cartoon, but you compare that five episodes worth of the cartoon (laughs) to X-Men The Last Stand, you're going to be a fan of the cartoon. Well, I guess if you're comparing anything to X3, (laughs) anything would come out favorably. Although X3... it does have its moments. I think I've said that before. There are there are I, powerful moments in that movie. I'm all right with it. But it, as a whole, I'm not a fan. The serialized nature of the cartoon and how they did that almost as its own little miniseries, um, you know, they, they, they got the episodic 
um, thrill ride cliffhanger aspect, you know, uh, uh, communicated that way. So in that yeah. in that respect, it they they strung you along. They told their story. Just weird seeing Gambit and Jubilee there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> X-Men. Issue 133. This this is one of the greatest Wolverine moments of all time. This issue opens Wolverine alone. Wolverine is pulling the old pushing himself against the ceiling joists to hold himself up where nobody can see him. You ever tried this? Have I tried this? I did this when I was little and yeah. I didn't weigh 250 pounds. <laughs> Have I done this recently? No. But you could like, really like to do it in the door jam, <laughs> like inches way up. Yes. Yeah, that's fun. This doesn't look fun. So he's covered in uh, a mixture of uh, sewer sludge and his own sweat. I'm guessing. Yeah. As the Hellfire goons are searching for him in the basement. Yeah. And uh, the I mean, I lo- Angelo aren't going to have any of that. <laughs> I love these costumes. The Hellfire Guards costumes yeah. are so cool. Yeah. Their little mannequin masks or crash dummy masks or whatever you want it's to call creepy them. Creepy as hell. Yeah. With the seam down the middle and it looked, it's everything that was wrong about when they gave Iron Man a nose in the seventies. Right. Except it's cool here. That's what that is. Yeah. That is exactly what that is. Ah, <laughs> oh, Steve, you did it. Yeah, that's, that's what this is. Except they're flesh colored. And creepy. What I love too about the scene where he's just, you know, uh, this two page sequence of him just marching through the troops and slicing away is that every scene, every panel where there's claw to flesh contact, the whole panel is colored like red and orange. Yeah. And it's yeah. like the equivalent of a bam pow without writing a bam pow. It's like meow, zap, you know? Right. <laughs> really. It really lets you know that something intense is happening without showing a speck of blood. Right. That's kind of what it accomplishes. It shows you that, that the, you know, gives you the the feeling that blood is flying everywhere, but there's none to be found. Um, and I and Byrne, of course, takes credit for that. He he said he suggested that uh, Glynis do that when she was coloring these panels. And then she said, "Forget it. I'm going to marry Len Wein." That's right. Because <laughs> wasn't she Glynis Oliver? Oh, she was Glynis Queen by then. Oh, she had already th- married. Uh, yeah, at this point, I think. But earlier in the run, I think she was still <laughs> Oliver, right? So Wolverine makes himself, makes us, uh, the Marvel Universe, some Reavers, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he makes mincemeat out of these guys. But I love, the, like, that's what I really... Like this, that's a perfect example of something that I miss from comics today. Like, I mean, it's a hundred and thirty issues before you. Well, probably not that long, but it's at least a hundred issues before you see these guys again, and they show up in the outback as the Reavers with like a vendetta against Wolverine that's just been building and building and building, and so good. It's one of my favorite Uncanny X-Men issues is 205, it's 204, 205, where Wolverine's uh, running through the wood, uh, Central Park after he's been, like, 205, uh-huh. after he's With been, like, Lady torn Death apart Strike. by Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers, mm-hmm. and he finds uh, the little girl from oh, the Katie Power. Power. <laughs> yeah, Katie Power takes care of him. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was such that? Such a good issue. Yeah. 
That's the uh, Barry Windsor Smith. Yes. Yeah, that's God. I could I could not come up with his name. It's a really really great issue. What remind what makes me think they have a scene here in this issue with the um, Hellfire Club with Jean totally turned into the Black Queen, um, not really interrogating the prisoners who are the X Men, but more um, just rubbing their noses in the fact that they've turned Jean right. He's like kissing her in front of them and. Um, Byrne draws the characters the way that Jean is being made to see them. Mm-hmm. So Aurora looks like a, uh, you know, like a, a pastoral, like, um, slave. And, um, they're all looking like, um, old English or Victorian era, um, scrubs or pirates almost, you know. Of course, they give Nightcrawler the Arrow Flynn look because no mm-hmm. one's ever going to see him as anything but that. All right. Right. But what it made me think of, and something that I haven't seen any of the creators mention as they're talking about this whole storyline and how this goes into Dark Phoenix land at the end, is that this it's very much like a vampire um, scenario. You know, you've got the good-looking, suave, Victorian-era dress um, world, and it kind of sucks in the pretty one, right? And, and kind of emotionally seduces her into... You know, the vampiric side, and then when she's all Dark Phoenixy, I mean, she's, she's almost drawn like a vampire in a couple of panels. I mean, they almost, yeah. uh, they almost suggest fangs. Um, but just the, the fact seeing them in this Victoria era scene here, and she's slapping around Aurora, it just really looked like that. Um, it just made me think of that whole Dracula vampire motif. And that's kind of what her journey is. Pretty solid observation, buddy. My two memories of reading this as a kid. Uh, one was how uncomfortable I was with the way that Jean was treating Storm in these panels, hitting her in the face with a whip. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up in Detroit, and I had a lot of black friends as a kid. And I, I mean, I just uh, always hated... You never hit any with a whip. Um, I wouldn't even joke about it. (laughs) I wouldn't even joke about it. I mean, it just, uh, it really kind of made me squirm in my seat reading it. I just felt really uncomfortable with that, but I'm sure that's the point. You know, it's completely against Jane's nature, and I'm sure it's there to suggest uh, just how far she is under Mastermind's spell. And how she's completely in another place. Yeah. You know, like another time, another whole sen- set of sensibilities. It's horrible. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was cool was this helmet that they've got Cyclops locked up in. He's in this Ruby Quartz helmet that's uh, blocking him from using his power. And it, it to me, it just looks like something straight out of Micronauts, which was my first comic love. Yeah, it does. So, uh I mean... I just stared at these panels with with Cyclops and his helmet. It, I mean, my memory of it is like staring at it for hours. It's and, like a Croyer without the Galactus wings. Yes, coming off of it, you know. That's exactly what it is. Or it Prince of, Prince like, Shaitan or whatever that guy's name was with the white helmet. <laughs> it reminds me of his um, Cyclops's mask now a little. Bit. Yeah, that's what oh, I was yeah. looking at it. Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, it's just a, a really cool design, you know functional looking and uh and it's weird because i didn't know cyclops any other way at this point like i in my head i was trying to picture 
what Cyclops really looks like. You don't see what he looks like in costume in this issue anywhere. So, um, you know, I mean, you see his face and it's weird in the first issue I read, I get to see his face without his goggles or anything. And, you know, it took, what, 30 years, 20 years to get to that point for everybody else. And bam, the first issue I ever read, there he is. I like, too, how they play upon the Hellfire Club being all interconnected and setting up the whole Robert Kelly stuff that is to follow and showing that they've got, you know, that that senatorial connection and therefore connection to making sentinels and stuff. People are dangerous. Yeah. I, I mean, it's been a while since I read Days of Future Pasts, and I have no memory of what their motivation for doing this is. So I'm looking forward to... To seeing, I, I assume it's discussed somewhere. Mo- what, Sh- what Shaw's motivation for wanting Sentinels is? It's is it just to sell them? I think it's just a game of money and power. Like I don't think that he has any type of like. I don't think there's a supervillain esque reason as to why he builds them. Yeah, I mean, but just to point out the obvious, I mean, the inner circle is almost entirely mutants. It seems uh, counterproductive to his goal. I actually don't remember power. where it's explained. I yeah, me either. That, you know, if all it takes is an amulet around uh, Trask's kid, <laughs> you know, to block him, <laughs> uh, I think they can be the safe inner circle. Fair enough. Yeah, I've already forgotten that. Take care of the competition. That's right. You know, and these these are the new players in the mutant war. Before this, all we get, you know, was what we had was Magneto as the evil mutants, right? The mm-hmm. X Men as the good guys, kind of thing. And um, now we're getting this third, um, really global player in the mutant positioning, you know, scheme. We think Magneto's gone at this point. He doesn't come back till one fifty. So uh, these guys are kind of filling the void. The Hellfire Club always creeped me out too, because it's just the like rich, high society, like, it's like the easiest thriller to run to. I mean, it's rampant right now, like, with, you know, you hear, like, there's a Chuck Palahniuk book where one of the short stories in it is rich people who go out and, like, pretend to be homeless, and they wind up getting, like, murdered by just some guy who's out there getting his rocks off by (laughs) killing vagrants, like... Uh So, I don't know. So, something about, I guess, growing up, like, I just, there was something really creepy about um, how trustworthy these adults seemed to me. Like, they were... the class. Yeah. Like, it was, you know, there was just something about it where it tapped into, like, my... um, When I was a kid, one Christmas, some uh, friends of mine that lived down the street from me went to the, we walked to the Kmart that was by our house, and they stole um, controllers and the duck hunt gun for the <laughs> Nintendo, okay? Uh-huh. And I remember, like, not really knowing what was going on, because I was the younger of all the kids. They were my brother's friends. But I remember later on that day feeling super guilty about it, mm-hmm. and I told my parents about it, that they had done that. And my parents were just like... No, you must be mistaken. They wouldn't do that. And I remember, like, how much that bothered me. They snuffle up against you. It's a bummer. Because I believe he exists. Yeah. 
And so wow. for some odd reason, that always tapped into this, oddly enough, because it was that, that thing where it was like, well, like, Sebastian <laughs> Shaw can just go up to the cops and be like, those filthy fucking beauties. And, like, and, and literally, that's what happened. Yeah, no, yeah. I know. That's why when I read that, I was like, adults can't be trusted. He's <laughs> <laughs> hanging out in Avengers headquarters, and he's the one who's on monitor duty. And he sees a police report come up that the police are, like, converging on the Hellfire Club, that the X-Men have basically attacked the club. And sure enough, you see Cyclops running into the hall full of well-dressed rich people saying, you know, everybody get out in an orderly fashion or whatever. And what Mastermind is seeing them, is making them see is him, like, shooting optic blasts at them. So they're going to come out of this with a huge PR hit. Fortunately, Hank is the one who's at the at the helm, and he of all things, erases the police report and then heads off to rendezvous with his pals, the X-Men. Right. He's had enough of Avengers um, society here. Yeah. So, if you ever want to know where my anti-authority comes from, Jerry, it's clearly <laughs> the Hellfire Club. <laughs> and being raised by the authority. <laughs> yeah. Just because you weren't a fan of Duck Hunt. <laughs> I love Duck Hunt. I just want you guys to know I'm not a rat. I was just very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jason Wingard has his big showdown with Scott, like on a mindscape, and, and kills Scott in front of Gene. And rather than that uh, driving um, her further into his control, it actually, as she describes, uh, is like a splash of cold water to the face. And now she is back in control. Now, how messed up? Must that have been for the other X-Men not understanding, like, Colossus Storm and Nightcrawler have no real, like, all of this stuff is kind of being dropped on them at once, where, like, they've been along for the ride, but they've not totally been noticing the whole Jason Weingard thing. Like, Scott and Gene haven't been open about the fact that they've both kind of been having the, Gene especially, but Cyclops had it towards the early beginning part of this issue where they're slipping out, in and out of different time streams they think but it's mastermind's illusion so you're just nightcrawler standing there and all of a sudden cyclops you can't see his face you don't you can't hear him because he's got this mask on and he just doubles over that'd freak me the fuck out man (laughs) what i had forgotten is when gene comes to and confronts wingard um mastermind it was just like a little doohickey that he had that, that that helped him you know, be more powerful than his typical illusion powers and take control. Some little doohickey that Emma Frost made and she crushes it. It's yeah. Like the size of a deck of cards. I, I forgot that it was, that there was some little amplifier like that. Kind of a kooky little yeah. <laughs> <plot> choice there. <laughs> Convenient little device, eh? Well, it made all this possible. So I mentioned that 132 was my first issue. I read 132 and 133 back to back. That was all my brothers had. Oh, so when I, I really got to the end of 133, I went. I got to the end of 133, and you see Wolverine realize he's coming up against some rent-a-cops, so he can't use his claws, and he disappears beneath a, a mountain of uh, billy clubs, just beating him to death. I think is a six or seven year old or whatever I am followed by Scott being stabbed through the chest with a rapier and dropping dead according to Nightcrawler that's all I got that was it best comic ever (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) I was like what just happened 
And I, I, I don't know. Five, ten years before I found out more. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, like I, I was reading, oh. I picked up, probably within the next three years, I picked up, started buying X-Men on my own. But I never, it was long time before I got, whenever I bought this. Yeah. That would have been, uh, I don't know, like 87 or 88 when I bought this graphic novel. And, um, it's a third printing from 84. So let's say 86. Is that the Bill Sienkiewicz cover? Yeah. That's right. I got that one. Yay. So a uh, long time before I figured out how he wasn't dead. Because <laughs> he sure looked dead to me. Yeah. This material has been reprinted every which way too, right? Omnibus form, oversized hardcover form, uh, hardcover and softcover Marvel Masterworks. Just as a regular Dark Phoenix trade paperback reprinted every decade, probably. It's on the Marvel Unlimited uh, digitally. It exists in movie form and cartoon form. It does not exist in movie form. (laughs) It partially exists. Well, certainly, like everything else, it can be rebooted. No, because... This is exactly why... Okay. Saying that the Dark Phoenix saga was done in movie form is exactly why when a comic book movie comes out and all of us nerds start going, the next thing they should do is this, and the next thing they should do is this, and then they do it, we should just stop asking for things and just let them do what they're going to do. Because I remember when the first two X-Men movies came out, everybody was just like, oh my god, they have to do the Dark Phoenix saga. And there was just no... Unless you do the space stuff, unless you do all of that, like, X3 ended with, like, Magneto ripping the fucking Golden Gate Bridge out in the middle of the day, right? And then all of a sudden it gets there and it's nighttime to try to make it look like the blue area of the moon. That's why it was, like, done on Alcatraz. You can even watch the movie, and there's, like, a bluish tint to Mm -hmm. that end battle. It's dark out. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's got that vibe, like, and I don't... Well, I imagine that probably made the special effect easier and cheaper. Uh, sure, but it was like, it just made me feel dirty, because it was just like, they're trying because we asked for it, but they're not, you know, doing it they, they correctly. They did a scene of the Dark Phoenix yes. stuff, but they didn't do a movie about it, and they didn't tell the story. Yeah. They just use that to kind of write Cyclops out of the movies because he had to be somewhere else, right? Oh, the worst. <laughs> yeah, so played Cyclops. Yes. Is that really true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was going to be, um, was, wasn't he going to be in the Superman movie? Superman movie. It was Superman because movie. of that terrible Superman well, movie? Well, no. It was he because when he, okay. when he was initially cast as Cyclops, you look at the history of the books and you're like, fucking A. Right? Not realizing that you're getting paired with walking, talking, real-life Wolverine that blows everybody away. (laughs) So I think he was partially upset with his lack of participation in the first two movies. Hmm. He he uses Optic Blast twice in the first two movies. In the second movie, he gets knocked out, locked up, whole movie. Yeah. So I think he was a little bit bummed. Sorry. I'll get closer. (laughs) Sean always leans way back when we're talking, and 
I always have to amplify everything he says because he's so far away from the mic. I'm sorry. Whatever it takes to put your feet up on the table. He's almost there. He's got the one arm over the back of the chair. He looks really cool and comfortable. X-Men was still... I'm all hopped up on... ...at this time, so... What? um, No. I believe it was. And I I think there was a two-month wait between issues, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but... Yeah, Steve, I think it goes back way earlier. Never going to be happy, us fans. Too late shipping, double shipping. Now they're now they're double shipping everything. <laughs> yeah, and more titles on top. Find of that. the happy medium, guys. Yeah. Christ, we can't have six issues a year. We want fifty-two issues a year of just one title. Oh no, you're right. They were monthly at that time. Yeah, I want to say it was somewhere around one thirteen or one fourteen. They made the, the switch. The month seemed so long back then. It did. That's true. Time was different as a kid. Oh my god! There yeah. weren't any other X titles, you know. There I was do. One Spider, two Spider-Man titles. There was one X-Men title. Good times. Careful what you wish for. You know what I'm saying? Oh. You end up with Web of Spider-Man. <laughs> Put that cover, that Charles Vest cover. Oh yeah. yeah. So good. So the X-Men are kind of like out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? They've dodged the Jean as Black Queen issue. Yes. But within moments, she's not back to being Phoenix. Well, kind of. Yeah. They're making their getaway in the Hellfire Club's cool little insectoid ship, and the whole thing explodes. Because she is Dark Phoenix, right? That's right. Man, fire and just, incarnate. Just real quick, that whole like I like I always like the the little thing that they do where you know the leader suddenly is like, hey, if we all switch, they do that thing all the time. Yeah, their way to defeat the Hellfire Club is for everyone to switch who they were fighting, and suddenly it worked <laughs> out. Yeah, but man, the way that Jean does take Jason Weingart down is brutal. I mean, she just leaves that poor dude drooling, comatose. Makes him one with the universe. Whew. That is a trippy panel too, where his yeah. mind expands. That's I like it. Very Starlin esque, like Starlin creating uh Kronos and uh all that sort of business. Yeah. I do like that insect little ship you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh the X Men's first battle against Dark Phoenix is uh a scary deal. It's not looking very good for them. And it's interesting because the the creative team here has been fighting against, well, Burn at least, to listen to him tell the story. Fighting against letting Phoenix get too powerful because it makes for an uninteresting story if she's more powerful than the rest of the team put together. But Superman. Then in the, exactly. Exactly Superman. So... In the end, that's exactly what happens, and it's really compelling. Of course, it, yeah. it requires her being a villain. But yeah, um, she—it's hard because Claremont and Cockrum basically created Phoenix, right? I mean, that's that's a Cockrum design outfit, mm-hmm. if I've ever seen one. Um, and their intention was—and they had a special fondness for her as Phoenix because they kind of co-created her as Phoenix together. Burn came on seven issues later without such connections to her as a character. In fact, wanted to write, get her out of the book ASAP, according to really both of them. 
uh-huh. uh, both Claremont and Byrne. So Cl- Claremont and Cockerham's idea was let's level someone up to like a Thor or Silver Surfer, like power level, but without them going through the proverbial stations of the cross that you have to go through so that with great power can come the great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, let's bring her down from there. So that's where Claremont was trying to go with, but then Byrne kept, like, not including her in as many scenes as possible. <laughs> so she was kind of coming in and out, and Byrne was saying, look, no one even notices she's gone when we don't put her in issues, yet when she was on the cover, they were big sellers. So, you know, Claremont would come back with that sort of business. But she was one of the con- the, the points of contention between the two of them. But yet they both recognized that it was making for good comics, that they disagreed over her, and so did Shooter and Salakra, supposedly. Hmm. Man. That's a great first page of this issue. The title card. They were so cool back then. Mm-hmm. I'm out of new comics, Jerry. <laughs> I'm only buying back issues from now on. I love too Claremont's got a comment that he made somewhere about how um in usually in Marvel the more like evolved the character becomes, the more intellectual they are. You know, like Galactus is intellectual, the high evolutionary, he evolves himself and he gets all brainy, you know. Um, and right around this time was uh, that cool Fantastic Four two-issue story, where, uh, which was a Marvel Wolfman John Byrne story, where um, Reed's friend um, becomes the futurist and he's all big-headed and everything. And, uh, <laughs> that's a really cool one. Um, so there was kind of a consistency that, like, the more evolved you get, the more intellectual you are. Yet here, Claremont wanted to have something that was very instinctive and guttural and emotional mm-hmm. um, rather than intellectual mm-hmm. so that it was not only the life bringer but the chaos bringer, too. And uh, here we're getting a taste of that chaos. Uh, there's a total blank there because I'm just staring at the art. <laughs> These are really great. Like the panel of of Jean when you turn the page of that particular issue and like see her exploding the little ship apart and the X Men falling. Like the way she looks and throwing her arms and her hair is all crazy. That that vampirist look. Too. Yeah. Yeah, she's pretty effortlessly taking everybody out, and and not easily either. She, uh, what she does to Colossus is the one that really blows my mind. He picks, tries to pull the trick he did on Archon where he uproots a tree and he's gonna smack her with it. And, uh, she just changes him back to human form. And somehow, he's badass enough to still be able to support the tree a little bit. Right. But then she transmutes it into solid gold. And not that cool 80s TV show. I'm talking about the element gold, and he's smushed underneath it, and uh, Wolverine tries to come to his aid and is also trapped. So she, what a canuckle head. So she takes the two of them out in one fell swoop. Solid gold is the uh, answer, the retort to every um, criticism of female uh, crime fighters wearing high heels saying that, like, women could never fight crime in high heels. Could you remember what the solid gold dancers could do in their high heels? 
Wonder Woman could definitely do, you know, fight crime in high heels if the solid gold dancers could do what they could do in them. That's right. They don't have Wonder Woman's ankles. <laughs> Think about it. I like how the Dark Phoenix is such a um, immediately important event that we get all those little cameos of, like, you know... Uh, the thing rushing out of the shower to go talk to Reed, who's already getting some readings, and Spidey's spider sense is tingling, and Stephen Strange, you know, feels a tremor in the force, and then the Silver Surfer feels like there might be a kindred spirit around or something. Yeah, I feel like, um, reading this again, it reminded me of, uh, reading through the Joss Whedon stuff at the end of the, the Joss Whedon arc when, uh, they had all the major players from the Marvel Universe kind of gather together to try yeah. to figure out how to stop that giant bullet. Yep. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that might have been a callback to this, maybe? And good old StarCore 1. Yeah. With Peter Corbo on there, huh? That's right. That's right. Very cool. In, in my memory before was that she destroyed that, but... Man, disappointed she that it didn't looks happen. crazy if she's passing Starcore One. Yeah, <laughs> what a lunatic! Yeah, it's like, she. It's like Dorothy looking out the window and seeing the Wicked Witch pedaling on that bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Claremont had written the plot that she destroys a star, um, in her ravenous hunger. Uh, and, and need to refuel as she's flying around in space. But Byrne added a panel to that page. Fucking Byrne. The asparagus people, right. And these, these guys date all the way back to Avengers number four. They've actually appeared in the Marvel Universe before. <laughs> and for, it's weird. For some reason knowing that makes it a little sadder. Yeah. No, it really does. This always um reminded me of when fucking Cybertron gets destroyed. Ryan <laughs> <laughs> tears for robots. Yeah. Yeah, so by her killing um four billion people on this planet, because as she consumes the star it goes hot and uh and expands and destroys uh this planet, um she's now um you know committed a lot of homicide. And the Shi'ar take notice, and she takes out their scout ship as well. So she's done a double deed here. Yeah, I guess, so the way this was originally scripted was that uh, she would run into the scout ship, the scout ship would fire at her, and she'd wipe it out. And that was the impetus for the whole uh, Shi'ar trial. Um, but I guess that wasn't evil hmm. enough for Burns, so he added the star. Well, he added the planet to the star. Oh, the planet to the star, okay. Man. Thanks a lot, Burn. <laughs> it's, I mean, Jean, by having the, the, the phoenix within her, she had, again, thinking of the phoenix as being rawly emotional rather than intellectual, going with that um, scenario. She's had every emotional sensation, like, jacked up to, like, an infinite degree, right? So now she's got the physical capacity, according to Shooter, or according to Claremont, to basically gratify every one of her emotional desires. 
So this whole destroying the planet star thing is like a cosmic orgasm. It's like an act of masturbation, according to Claremont. She's not thinking she's in this high, thanks to Mastermind, what was a being of love is now a being of lust. Um, you know, th- that decadent black queen trip turned an otherwise not evil phoenix from that into something that could manifest every one of her wishes, and, and that's coming right off of her being all sexualized and seduced and, and tainted that way. Um, plus, she's human and, and can't deal with the Phoenix Force, too. And, and mm-hmm. another one of Claremont's allegories is it's like giving a child a control panel that controls all the nukes and bombs in the world. <laughs> they just don't have the capacity emotionally, developmentally, to, they're not capable of dealing with it, and and neither is she. So in a way, she almost shouldn't be to blame. It's like someone who wakes up um, and and commits a, a murder, you know, when they're still sort of in a dream state. Uh, something that can that actually gets used in, in courts of law. Uh, so she's really in this kind of um, again, she's kind of getting off cosmically here, and uh, she's going to pay the price. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have, you both, have you both um, read uh, Trial of Jean Grey that recently came out the crossover between Guardians of the Galaxy no, and the next one? Okay. I have read it. Alright, never mind then. I don't want to spoil things. No, I don't, I don't mind spoilers. Oh, it's just, um, um, there's a very... Hold on. Oh. Oh, you do. Folks. <laughs> no, no, no. Folks, uh, spoilers are upcoming, so... Uh, <laughs> I will put a spoiler notice in. Okay. The show. I mean, I guess it's, it's just the fact that like during the trial of Jean Grey, they actually play this transmission back of the two guys talking to Lalandra and like saying farewell to her. And it was just interesting to see it from. Oh yeah. Like I thought it was cool that they had like the transcript of it. And you know, I always think it's neat when they do that where they go back and it's like basically verbatim, you know, like they took the time to go back. Mm-hmm. Figure out exactly what it was. Drop it in there. Cause I always felt bad for these guys. How awesome is Dave Cockrum's design for the, uh, like, eyeliner tattoos around the Shi'ar's eyes? Oh yeah. yeah. They're so great. They look yeah. cool on the guys and they look really feminine on the girls. Um, really cool. And Landra's got the special little star cause she's the regiment, you know? Regent. There's, um, there's a lot of guys go on the internet and post sketches that they, they do, you know, on their, their Tumblr page or whatever. You need an Imperial Guard jam piece, just so you know. I, I was kind of getting there. So, so everybody's got their favorites. Like everybody likes to do Batman. You know, a lot of people like to do the thing. You know, they're, they're really cool character designs, but the Shi'ar, like it'd be cool just to see a bunch of guys do their take on the Shi'ar. You know, what, what they would do with with that race of, of beings. I almost thought of doing a jam piece someday of just people doing Dave Cockrum designed characters because oh. they're so indicative. But then yeah. have other characters doing them. Would the would that obvious similarity carry through to all the different artists' interpretations of you know? I mean, there's only so many headdresses he did. So you know, is this uh-huh. I, I can pick out a Dave Cockrum design outfit. You know what I mean? Out of a lineup in a second. Yeah. That would be cool to see. Pointy shoulders. 
I love the, the final page of this issue too. It's the X Men um, licking their wounds, um, hanging out, drinking like hot cocoa, hot chocolate. Um, in, in <laughs> Banshee's not even there, Sean. I don't know how they got this hot chocolate. <laughs> he shipped it from Muir Island. <laughs> What's great is the Beast has rejoined the team, right? As we said before, uh-huh. and the Beast is realizing that he and Nightcrawler are like the same, right? They're yeah. both sitting on the counter in the exact same pose, and the Beast is looking over at Nightcrawler, realizing it. And then later in a panel, they're posed exactly the same. Yeah. And then in the last <laughs> panel, they have the exact same expression. It's great. That's I really also good. love that they're in the kitchen, and the issue ends with him saying that Phoenix is returning to Earth, and she's hungry. <laughs> it's like, well, good thing you're all in the kitchen. <laughs> I saw. I read in one of these interviews somebody saying they wish they could have done a panel where uh, Beast was sitting between Nightcrawler and Logan with his mask off. Because, you know, he looks like Nightcrawler and he's got Logan's hair. <laughs> but, yeah, enough enough levity, guys. Bad things are about to happen. As we roll up into issue 136. Classic cover. X-Men! We've seen it so many different places, both before and after this issue. You know what's missing in in this uh, collection is there's no cover Same gallery. Same thing with mine. There's no covers. Let me break out the omnibus that arrived in it. One of my favorite covers. It's the old Cyclops holding, uh, you know, Jean, like, and held. Uh, she was dead, and like, the Madonna holds her child, and all that other stuff. You wait, could when, win. Wait, when who held who? We yeah. don't know who you speak of. I'll be beeping all those out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a, um, so wait, yeah, this predates the, the crisis. And okay. then there's a, I've got a mighty, you didn't say mighty mouse, did you? You couldn't have no. said mighty mouse. I've got a mighty mouse issue that somebody gave me. That's an homage to this too. That's awesome. It's completely awesome. There is a wrong to right. <laughs> well, Jean, um, is, on the prowl. She's coming back from her um, cosmic orgasm and uh, she decides to have a quiet moment and visit her parents and kind of see if there's any connection that she kind of still has to what she was before I think. And this is one of the panels where we really see her drawn as a vampiress where uh, the way Austin inked yeah. her mouth, it I mean she looks like she's got fangs going. Yeah. This sequence is so creepy when i read this as a kid i read this as like oh there's her parents this could be the point that turns her you know it saves her but reading it now knowing the ending it's it reads completely differently it is so creepy like she's gonna i feel like she's just gonna turn on her own family plus like two plus you just like you're looking at her sister her mom her dad and you know that years later. Yeah. Like. Yeah, but in the meantime, they get that little magic eight ball with Gene's essence in it, and that's kind of cool to put on the map. Yeah, yeah, too, but I mean, I'm talking about you. <laughs> Who wrote that? The, uh, uh, the, her family got wiped out? Yeah. My guess is that it would be during like the Lobdell era, but I could be wrong. No, no it no, was, it's much, it was later. it's much later than that. Was it Claremont? I want to say if it was not Claremont, it might have been Davis. 
but I'm pretty sure that it was Claremont because Claremont and Davis came back right around the same time. Yeah, it wasn't Chuck Austin? No, <laughs> no, it was after. I think it was after the. Austin it was run. after that. It was like right around the time of um, House of M. And I remember because didn't it was before House of M. The entire issue it was because I think it has one of those decimation banners on it, like on the side. Oh. And uh, listen to Steve; he's so bored right now. Yeah, he's like, "Guys are the X Men uh, experts. Come on now." I think because it was the thing that I thought was cool about the issue was it was done in like I think thirty six seconds or something like that, like every, whatever or thirty two, however, like whatever the page count was, was like actually just a second. In this, uh. That's creepy. Cause it was a, it was a gray family reunion. This is when the Shi'ar yep. were coming for Rachel. Yeah. To brand her. To, yeah. So they're trying to capture Rachel and somehow they end up at. Well, their orders were to capture Rachel and kill the entire bloodline. Kill all the bloodline. Yeah, right, right, right. Wipe out the line. Yeah. And it happened in seconds. It's a really great issue if you, uh. That was one where uh, his his art was bordering on greatness, but it was so hard to follow yeah. what was going on from panel yeah. to panel. I have that problem. Really challenging. I love his panels, but I don't care for his storytelling. Yeah. I wish... Because, see, I go back to, like, his Generation X stuff, you know, the early, early sure. stuff, where it would have been... I guess he did some of the Sandman stuff, right? Uh-huh. And that would have been, it would have been more that style. Like, the characters were a lot um, thinner. They weren't, like, he, he makes everybody, like, bulky and kind of squished now. And back then, he had this really, like, thin kind of style. It was the same thing that I liked about that very underrated artist, Adam Polina. He did X-Factor stuff. Yeah, and he did, or X-Force stuff. And he did a really good, it was maybe, like, five or six years ago, he did a really good, um early Angel miniseries before he went to Xavier's school that was like Warren at a boarding school and like a uh, a preacher was kind of going from town to town trying to like exercise demons from, or, you know, mutant powers from kids. But he wound up just killing them. <laughs> nice. That was Chris Claremont. It was? Yep. Okay. So you can't... I mean, who better to do it than yeah. him, you know? Uh, it was, the arc was called The End of Grace. Yes. And it was, uh, wah, wah. issues 466 to 471 of Uncanny X-Men. And I wow. did, I did enjoy it. It's be a while before we get there. Yep. <laughs> According to Jerry, we're never going to get there. He's going to give up on me long point. beforehand. Well, at this point, I, that's right. Uh, once we get to this point, I was starting to enjoy it a little more again. Okay. So we'll just, we'll, we'll just skip. skip the Austin stuff. <laughs> oh God, we... We gotta cover the Austin we'll stuff. We'll do the Austin we'll stuff and tear it off. <laughs> Yes! So yeah, anyways, I'm sorry for that little digression, but, uh, it's just kind of a bummer knowing what I know now when I go back and read these stories where it's like, you're all dead and it's just cause you wanted your kid to get a good education. Aww. And for her to deal with having to be Connected to the mind of her best friend who got run over by a car. Hmm. During the big fight in the park or on the grounds that uh, Dark Phoenix has with the team, um, it made me think of the old Burn Austin drawn um, uh, Thon, or however you like to say uh, that demon's name that took over the Scarlet Witch back in the Avengers. She's got them all lined up, held 
in stasis, you know, and then yeah. she's like got that wild looking demony face thing going. It really reminded me of that whole sequence and um the the face that uh, Colossus makes reminds me a little bit of the pain that uh, Captain America was in when he was in the stasis. A very uh, similar scenario. Oh man, so creepy. The way she kind of smiles at Colossus right before she twists the knife in him. You can't see what she's doing with her hands too or where she's going to And then in the next panel she's got that one hand that's reaching down like below the belt height if they're and, you know, if they're all being held at the same height, basically. And yeah. It's, uh, it always made me think that she kind of, um, you know, squeezes balls or something. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to look at that panel differently again. Hey, congratulations. You guys Steve. ruined it for you, me. You guys. I'm just sitting here like you, man. I don't, don't blame me. Uh, part of them they don't show. Like, it's, it's, it's suggested. Right? And there's it, a wrinkle in his, as Alan would say, European briefs. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have tears coming out of your eyes when you're if you're Colossus unless somebody's squeezing your balls. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh that's so awesome to go from her just completely vice in his nuts to Cyclops in the background going, Stop it, Gene. <laughs> Stop it. You said you'd only do that to me. <sighs> that was supposed to be our special thing. <laughs> And then the awesome, awesome showdown between Xavier and Jean. Yeah. But they're getting, they're getting through to her occasionally. Like, she's still kind of, that is a great looking, man, Xavier kicks ass. Yeah, his chair doesn't hold up. Nope. No, that's weird. Spokes are all broken and stuff. That has gotta go. It's interesting to me. I mean, this is exactly what happens at the end. Spoilers. This is exactly what happened at the end of AVX. But where Gene fails, Scott succeeds. Does he? And that, <laughs> I mean, he succeeds he in, ever win? <laughs> he succeeds in doing what he wanted to do. And in succeeding, he loses. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know, man. And you know that the Phoenix Force is taken out of her, right? Because when she was in the snow in the Savage Land thing that we talked about, like when they were escaping, and he, when her costume was ripped, it just healed back up, and now she's all naked. She lost the costume. Right. So she must be cured. Either that or she's trying to distract them. This is not a time <laughs> I'd want my father to see me if I was. Yeah. Here he comes in his plaid PJs. She's making out with Scott. She's completely naked. Professor X has a big boner. God, Jerry. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then um, a big flash of light and they disappear. What? There's more to this thing? There's a lot more, Steve. There's 35 pages. Now, more. I'm not a parent, so this doesn't hit me. But what do you two do if you're standing out there on your front lawn and your daughter gets stabbed with a huge ray of light? And her and her crazy-ass teammates get taken away to God knows where. What do you do? I look over at my wife and I say, I'm so glad I threw that robe before the flesh alive. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and then I am happy as a parent that I have boys. Yay! <laughs> yeah, the kind of stuff they don't teach parents, man. I'm not prepared for this when this happens. At least she's got her team with her, right? They can... <laughs> Would stand anything. 
speaking of robes. X-Men. It brings us to issue 137. A special double-sized issue that could be worth $2,500 to you. Woohoo! If you're lucky. According to the giant banner across the cover of the issue where, spoilers, Jean Grey dies. I'm going to use that $2,500 to go on a Toys R Us shopping spree. So, Steve, why don't you tell us again uh, why this stupid-ass banner exists on this... Uh, it, according to Shooter, it's a page increase thing, um, where or a, a page uh, price increase thing, where um, when they started doing, I, I think it was before they started doing royalties, but so it was probably just a paper cost increase. But Shooter felt really bad about having to um, increase the prices. He held back way longer than DC uh, did on. I think DC actually had raised their prices twice, if I'm not mistaken, during one of the periods that Marvel stayed at the same price. But each of the two times that they did it, another one of these big banner uh, promotions uh, appeared on the covers of the issues, the same month of the price increase. Mm-hmm. A little hard to tell with this issue of the X-Men because it was a double-sized one. Mm-hmm. But the Toys R Us shopping spree was the other ad. Oh, and that's in the next issue. Ugh. <laughs> uh. But so you quickly forget about it when you open a page and you got the watcher there. You know this is big doings. Big doings. And enjoy them while we've got them, folks, because it's going to be a long, well, a very short summer for the watcher. If Jason Aaron has anything to say about it. Isn't the watcher kind of lost his impact, though? Um, you right, jelly and recorder. It can do the job. <laughs> Being outsourced. <laughs> Okay. Have you seen the cover to the X-Men tie-in? No. No. Oh, it's so cool. It's just a, it looks like an old leather-bound book, and then a gold stamped embossed, no title card, no um, creator notes, nothing. It's just a, a like a leather-bound book, and gold stamped on the front of it. It says the last will and testament of Charles Francis Xavier. Wow. It looks really good. Who's writing it? Bendis. Okay. And it's supposedly, you know, from what I read in the interview with him, going to alter the X-Men forever <laughs> until next year. Until next year. That's right. I remember what blew me away about 137 was um, right from the cover was, hey, wait a minute, Jean's in her Marvel Girl costume. Yeah. At that time, we hadn't seen Marvel Girl costume like that in forever. 68? Maybe? Neil Adams, right? Yeah, some reprints. <laughs> right, yeah, I guess you can count those. Don Heckin. So, um, yeah, 137, you see the Watcher, and he lays it all out for you. It's about to get heavy. And uh, and then you see the X-Men, again, they're on the deck of a Shi'ar ship. They've been through this act before, but they're, they're looking like they haven't. They're all astonished. Jean Grey looks like she's aged about 30 years since uh, the Dark Phoenix took over. She's looking pretty tired. Xavier was just here. He was like, I just moved out. Yeah. I tried to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. I really just love the whole pacing of this. It's a double-sized issue as the end of a big, long storyline. I mean, the setup of them being thrust into this situation... But it's not immediately hostile, so there's all this time to think about it, and all this time for all these 
character moments as they're getting ready and then doing oh. a big challenge battle against a whole other super team. Yeah. It just was perfectly paced for me as a kid um, reading this storyline. This was really what it was all about and why the X-Men were such a big hit. I love the fact that Xavier is just sitting there and they're about to get attacked by the Shi'ar and he's like, hold up. Prima Nocta writes. <laughs> Wait. I don't mean that. <laughs> I, I think you mean something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't yeah. even know how to say it. Aranin Halar, which is a challenge to a, a challenge you to a duel of honor for Jean Grey's life. He spent a little too much time among them. Yeah. He knows too much of their customs to be able to pull that one out. I want to say, so he challenges them to a duel, and they're going to fight against the Imperial Guard. It's complete horseshit that they get to use, like, the entire Imperial Guard. <laughs> right. They're like, okay, you've got six guys or whatever. Well, we've got 70 guys. And each one of them individually is probably better than you. And so, some of them are two, you know? The little yeah. one jumps off the other one's back. He's probably my favorite. War Star. Yeah. War Star, yeah. yeah. It's um, such a bummer, too, because as a kid, like, when I was reading this, it was like, the X-Men got this. And they just... Yes, I was just going to say the exact same words. Kicked, and I'm like, what? Well, back in 107 or whatever, they faced these guys before, and they whipped that ass. <laughs> the X-Men kicked their asses up and down. Wolverine comes home wearing their clothes. Right. I mean, he left them naked. Their cause isn't true this time, though. That's the problem. They're really not in the right here. Yeah. Gene did these crimes, and and they're fighting a battle for their friend versus what this way more what's presented as a way more advanced society that can look past the emotion and say we've got to take care of business here. It's interesting that. Lelandra always says it's the phoenix that has to go and never really says that it's Gene that has to go, though. Right. I, I blame Hank. I think that they lost the battle because when the little green alien towel turndown service lady shows up... <laughs> he's, he's thinking with his... She says remember? that she's his masseuse and she's there to look after his every need. And all he says, oh, my stars and garters... And we cut to Colossus hanging out in his European briefs. So the question is, did he follow through? Uh, did Beast not perform the following morning? Well, you never, in the, ever. Halar? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that you never do that the night before a heavyweight fight. And that's why that. he didn't show up. And that's why he got his butt handed to him. And that's why Jean Grey died. He had sea, he didn't have his sea legs. <laughs> That's right. I'm with you, man. 100%. At the time, I was happy for him, but now I, it's all gone. Yeah. I'll never read that the same again. Did you catch during the big battle sequence that happens on the ruins of the blue area of the moon where there's still oxygen and they're fighting on these old Kree um, catacombs that um, Nightcrawler uses his invisibility um, move for a moment? Well, he sure tries. Yeah, and Angel, being Angel, is Ugh. like, don't worry, guys, I'll scout ahead, I got this. Can we Fucked all agree? Out of the way. I mean, we make fun of Gambit, and we make fun of whoever, but if Angel's not the worst X-Men before Louise Simonson gets a hold of him, oh yeah, I don't know who is. This guy is useless. 
I like Sorry, him. Steve. I like he's him. He's terrible, man. But but he make, he's been making some dumb decisions during this. Every How time the champions, does he make a good champions? <laughs> I've never read any champions. <laughs> oh, really? I haven't. That's a quirky book. I, okay. I told what to do with the original X Men that are still floating around out there. I told him not to read with, it. Uh, Hercules and uh, Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider. And Black Widow. Makes perfect sense. Do you think that Warren tapped that? Black Widow. No, Ghost Rider, idiot. Uh, of course, Black Widow. Yeah. Uh, no, Hercules was during that series. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. <laughs> These battle scenes too really reminded me that I. Burn manages to really bring out the Kirby and the Cockrum at the same time. You know, he's working with these Cockrum designs, uh-huh. and I think I like Burn drawing Cockrum designs almost better than I like Cockrum drawing Cockrum designs. And but he adds that flair of Kirby to the poses, to just his sensibilities, to you know the big green robot-y looking dude has that Kirby vibe to him. Uh, and he, yeah. he just pulls from those two resources together, I think, so nicely, and then adds his own uh, burnness to it. But, gosh, I missed this era of the X-Men. This whole blue area is rendered so efficiently. I mean, every panel, there's just scads of detail. and The, the amount of world building that, that went into this. I don't know how much reference he's working from, or this is all just out of his imagination. I mean, Byrne is great at noodling. Look at any of his commissions, and there's just debris rubble. and rubble everywhere. It's it seems to be his specialty, but and that's the Kirby, right? I mean, that right. you know, that, that that's where Perez and Byrne both got it from. Uh huh. I also love the panel of uh, the big face-off between Gladiator and Colossus. Where they're posed and the Colossus is making the same uppercut that he was making on Sweaty Magneto in the volcano when they were having a <laughs> the big battle there. But this time it brings the runes down on top of them and they're just crushed, but only one of them comes out. Uh-huh. It's awesome. This, this fight is frustrating to me because I feel like, um, the X-Men should be doing better. Yeah. I really feel like they should be doing better. They're completely outclassed and unprepared for who they're facing. Yeah, Cyclops, man. Why split up? And it, you know, I, reading it this time, I'm looking at the way he divides the teams and, um, he makes a team that's almost entirely original X-Men and a team that's almost entirely new Mm X-Men. And it would have been an interesting bit had he split them up. So that Beast went with the rest of the original X-Men and Nightcrawler went with the rest of the new X-Men. You know, and, and then you do some kind of cool storytelling with, man, this, this reminds me of that first time we faced Magneto or, or whatever. It would have been like an extra cool goodbye for the original X-Men as they, as they fell one by one. You know, like that was the last time they were going to see Gene alive. Yeah, it's, it's not a coincidence that they brought back Angel and Beast right before this storyline. Um, the only original X-Men to not appear in any of the Claremont Byrne run is Iceman. Because Byrne didn't know how to draw him, he said. He couldn't figure out how to draw him until Tom Palmer was inking him on that Hidden Years title. Really? That's why? Yep. Yep. Wow. Sometimes finding out that stuff is a real drag, you guys. 
Like, that's kind of a bummer that Bobby wasn't, you know. Yeah. yeah he'd, he'd, right after Vern would leave, he'd pop back up, though. Remember that great murder world? Uh, yeah. Harris and uh, Bobby and um, the screamless banshee all together? <laughs> yeah. That's too bad, though. Yeah. But we almost got that region. Almost. I like Wolverine getting knocked into the Watcher's house <laughs> and then getting soundly That's kicked awesome. out. Awesome, because they're on that blue area, right? I mean, where's the Watcher? There he is. There he is. And it was a potential setup to um, draft number two of what would how they would end this book. They were going to use that sequence again. The Watcher? And the Watcher's place as huh. their... As their way out. Oh yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. We're coming up to the last yeah, page here I, where the, where the story had to be redrawn from. You get the Jean and Scott making their final stand. Um, they she's in her old uniform. They cover up their hiding spot with a dust wall and uh, hold I hands love and that say, move. Let's yeah. go. Let's go take them on. Um, and uh, they get crushed, and you don't see it. You just see a big pan back of that area, and you know biggins are going down. You can see it from orbit. Yes, you can. And that is where the original material ends of this story. Uh, the next page, that vehicle that you see flying in the air explodes. Uh, that was a surprise to Claremont up until the very last minute when he got the page... And it was too late to do anything about it other than to script it. So walk us through the... Uh... Why don't we say what, why don't we say what ha- did happen? In, in okay. The, first of all. Sure. The, 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 the ending that saw print, let's say. If there's anyone that's not familiar with this, shame on you. Go find mm-hmm. out. Go find out now. Don't, don't let our telling of it be your first experience with it. You should be reading this. What I love is the, um, due to the moon's lighter gravity, we get a reverse fastball special. <gasps> yeah. That I think is a nice touch. Um, uh, Wolverine throws a, uh, human, um, Colossus down at Jean, who's re-phoenixed out. Uh, all those people piling on top of her. She phoenixed out, blew up that little Shi'ar ship that was scouting in the sky. And the X-Men realize, oh man, we've got to totally take her down. She just took down the whole Imperial Guard that took us down. And now we're all beaten up and, and now we've got to take care of business here. And at so this point, gone. she's still just Phoenix. She hasn't turned Dark Phoenix yet. She's yeah. still kind of in control. But you she know it's just a matter of time. Yeah, I mean, it was it made sense to fight back against all those people pummeling on them, right? I mean, that was a, almost a self-defense move, a, a reactive move. But here she gets the uh, Colossus to the jaw, and uh, she's, like you said, she's kind of um, emoting here and, and saying that she's bound to the Phoenix like a symbiote, um, which is interesting because later on, Fern would say they had no idea that she and Phoenix were separate things and all that sort of business, but they really do allude to it enough. Um, and then she goes dark. She runs into the shadows, and she comes out all dark Phoenix again. Such a bummer. Tragedy all the way around. She holds Scott in stasis and then uses, as she's given a nice big long Claremont soliloquy, she um, 
manipulates a old piece of ordnance, uh, an old cannon there, an old Cree cannon, and uh, used to wipe herself out. And there's just nothing but a pile of dust there. And Cyclops, who for 40 issues now has been bottling up his emotions about Jean as he thinks he's lost her time and again, this time he sees her die right in front of his face and all he can do is stand there and watch it. And at this point, he finally... Her own choice, too. Yeah. He, I think it, it's finally too much for him. He finally can't bottle it up anymore and he just kind of crumples. So how do you resolve this whole thing? Well, you pan back to the watcher, right? Your your host. And he's got a Rigelian recorder with him, and I love it. I'm a sucker <laughs> for Rigelian recorders, guys, ever since the latent Hercules stuff. <laughs> and uh, for him to be there doing his part uh, in recording things is great. It seems like he and the watcher would get along pretty well. Mm-hmm. And they're able to um, question each other about the events that they've just seen, which is genius that should be done way more often and the way that they can resolve it no she's not a hero yes she was a murderer she paid for her crimes but well what's the one thing you can pull out of this is well she managed out of all that to die a human that's about the best you can say for yeah so now the thing is we talked about that there was a new editor on, right? Salakrup. Mm-hmm. And when Salakrup came on, from Stern being the editor, which both Byrne and Claremont say that they were really had good she with, they told Salakrup, hey, listen, we're in the middle of this big, heavy storyline. She's going bad. Things are going to get big. Uh, make sure that you are showing all of these things to Shooter, um, according to Claremont, at least. Mm-hmm. And according to Shooter, um, was like, I trust whatever you think, Jim. Uh, you, you gave me the basics of the story thing. She's going to go bad. I get that. Um, cool. Which, I just want to know what's going on. And, and, to me, that doesn't sound anything like Jim Shooter. Right. From well, he, any story I've ever heard about Jim Shooter's tenure at Marvel, that doesn't sound anything like him. But both he and Claremont both say the same thing, which is that, you know, Shooter kind of wasn't involved and couldn't read every book that came out. And a lot of times was up to letting the, as long as he knew the direction of the book, letting the creative personnel do their thing. But then comes all of the famous Shooter requests for redraws and stuff, right? Because of that setup, right? Right. And, and, and he admits to that, um, uh, weakness in his, um, you know, editorial and management style that, um, it was not the creator's fault, and here he is getting the final printed issue of the the issue 135, I guess it is, where she blows up the planet, mm-hmm. the star with the planet, and he's got a whole other issue that's already been drawn and inked and lettered in front of him, and then he's got most of <laughs> this 137 issue in front of him, and he's like, she can't get away with a slap in the wrist, like, she has to pay, like, horribly for her crimes. Mm-hmm. And Byrne now gives the old, like, all of a sudden a Marvel villain has to pay for their crimes, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and and throws, throws Shooter's own creation, the Beyonder, in his face. You know, <laughs> well, when, when did the Beyonder pay for the stuff that he did? 
Secret yeah. Wars 2, I guess, was Shooter's Retort. <laughs> Never read either. In the original story. <gasps> did you catch that? Yeah, I did. Well, you can skip the second one, except for the Newton's tie-ins, which we will be reading. Okay. Because that left me... I mean, I read that as they were coming out, so that impacted me a lot heavier than this did at the time, because I was reading it new when I was still a kid. Hmm. You would have never read Secret Wars. I'm sorry. Well, that's all right. That's right. I've let you down. It, I mean, it's not the end at all. It's just surprising it's because fair. you probably won't even like it, but it was cool in the 80s. I haven't. I've tried. The second is terrible. I'm sure. Is that the one where Spider-Man teaches him how to go to the bathroom? Yeah. That's what drove me out of comics, the second one. Uh-huh. Six months on the heel of the first one. Yeah. Anyways. Jerry, Jerry <laughs> curled beyond her. I got some toys from it. The original ending was after they get that beat down, uh, Scott and Jean, they are captured. And Landra, because they are a wiser, uh, more advanced race than us, she's talking about getting rid of the Phoenix folks, not Jean. And they were going to use, like, the galaxy's greatest telepaths to, like, sonically remove her uh, mutant abilities and really rebuild her, like, DNA over again as a non-mutant. Byrne wanted her to be lobotomized to, like, a nine-year-old, because that's before her mutant powers manifested, uh-huh. and wanted her basically to be, like, semi-retarded, living with her family, um, and even the thought or vision of Scott would, like, cause her great, like, distress, and she would, like, have a tantrum, and that was part of that love that could never be torture that Scott would carry around with him. Uh, <laughs> and for what they had written was that she would be returned to being a normal human um, at the, and it was drawn and everything mm-hmm. so uh, she comes out of it with the only punishment really being that she is now locked inside her own head for the first time ever and she's just not super heroic anymore but that means that her and Scott can go off into the sunset and have a baby, Rachel that was all planned from that get go does not know that but 150 was coming, right? This is issue 137. Mm-hmm. It's the 150. Claremont's plan was that in 150, Magneto would return, which he did, um, and that on Asteroid M, he would offer, he would kidnap Jean and offer her the Phoenix Force again. You know, if you'll mm. mop the floor a little for me right. along the way, you know. Um, and the X-Men come to rescue her, and the X-Men are fighting Magneto in a big battle on Asteroid M and like in a separate chamber Jean is like sitting there in front of the Phoenix Force with that choice in front of her. Like does she go back to being whole or what she considers whole again? Or but the potential is that she could go bad again and everything and she chooses not to take the the you know a golden ring. She chooses not to take the power and in doing so she ends by doing something heroic, and she's finally heroic out of this whole thing and makes a heroic choice. Byrne acts like he didn't know anything about that plan and was like, oh man, why didn't you say so? Uh, I would have, uh, I that's a great idea. Why don't we still write it? I could unwrite her being dead in a minute and all that. Um, and, and Shooter admits to saying, I wasn't even thinking ahead into 150. You guys could have killed her at the end of 150 instead of killing her right then at 137. 
Hmm. Um, and, and then they're like, no, 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 we could have had a happy ending. We didn't have to kill her. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, Wheezy comes in and tries to help them put this 137 together and repencil the last sequence and everything um, to, to organize all that because Salakrup was, like, nowhere to be found. He was, like, out of the, out of the picture. Whether he was fired or removed himself, I don't know what, but Wheezy comes in and, and helps Claremont. Uh, meanwhile, Byrne and Juder kind of agree to an ending that Byrne then goes ahead and draws, not realizing that it's not the ending that Claremont talked about with Wheezy. And that's the ending we got. And Claremont and Byrne and Wheezy had talked about um, their gene going back into the Watcher's uh, Citadel and tapping his brain to find, like, a weapon that could take herself, uh, neutralize her, basically. Not not kill herself, but to neutralize her. And that would be the way that they could have a device that could take care of her, not some old, you know, uh, Cree cannon that, like, hasn't been used in decades <laughs> on the Blue Area of the Moon, suddenly having the power to take out Phoenix. Uh, Claremont doesn't think that that all works. So it's just interesting the way that they had to bang it around, and then it comes back to Claremont, and it's not the ending that he said, and the Watcher's not in it, and he's just got to figure out how to script it, and by then it's just too late, and, and there's a deadline. And shoot, last thing I'll say about this big disagreement is um, Shooter said, um, well, let's do this to buy you guys time, because listen, I understand. Salakrip approved all of these scripts for you you're not really at fault here and here you are with like 36 hours to like come up with you know a, a new ending um let's break up the book into two issues two single sized claremont did not want to do that burn was like all right but then uh mike friedrich comes running in no 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 like there's already all these orders and all of these stores are waiting for a double issue we can't change it to being a single issue now this would be a nightmare and uh so they were forced to figure out where to do the change, and um, they still disagree about it to this day, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. The first ending sounds sweet. <laughs> the first ending was drawn, like I said. Oh, well, the where she gets, um, and we don't get it drawn all the way to the Magneto thing in 150. Right. But that was all drawn, and then later they got um, Austin to ink it, and they colored it, and they put it out as the Phoenix Untold Stories in that early 80s special edition format with the nice new wraparound covers and the Baxter paper and everything. Yeah. And for those who are interested, it is the last tale in the brand new Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Volume 2, uh, which I just got in the mail today. It's also in the hardcover and softcover Marvel Masterworks uh, Uncanny, I think it's Volume 5 that covers this uh, territory. If you want more bang for your buck. <laughs> There's a very interesting interview at the end that was conducted in 84, so it was just a few years after, and all of the players are present, um, and it's very interesting to hear them batting it around, and um, uh, Byrne doesn't present himself as, uh, um, for lack of a better word, classy as the rest of the gang um, in the way that the transcript reads. And it's like he's changing his story a little bit back and forth, but... Um, uh, it's very interesting, again, just to hear them expressing themselves not 20 years later looking back with, through rose-colored glasses, but still when they pretty much still remember what happened. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
how do you two, like, okay, so this is obviously one of the top two classic X-Men stories of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think, do you think it would have, do you think it would still hold the weight that it holds if they had gone with the original ending? No. I agree. Yeah. I think not. I think it would have been different and not necessarily worse in the long term because the idea was to create um it, it's dumb but I, I and I don't remember who said it but they wanted to create a, a Doctor Doom for the X Men, which they already had in Magneto. But um you know like a, a really dangerous villain yeah. that that they'd have to go up against that, and that could you know, keep returning no matter how many times they knocked her down. She could keep coming back because she was the Phoenix. And that's interesting, but I think as a, here's a story with an ending, it's a lot more right. satisfying the way they told it. Absolutely. Reading this like as a kid and, and that ending was super impactful. Unfortunately though, I guess I'm looking at it now from like hearing that ending compared to knowing what I know is like about to come with uh, Madeline Pryor and the whole awkward as fuck love triangle <laughs> in the beginning of X Factor when he's like hiding Madeline. Like That's it's, so it, like as much damage as the whole destroying a planet did to Gene, being a deadbeat dad, you know, leaving your clone wife who looks exactly like your dead wife who's now not dead anymore. Yeah. Like that damaged Cyclops. In the, almost in the same, cause I see a lot of people whenever, you know, online or whatever Cyclops is brought up, that's the first thing people always go to for like why they don't like Cyclops. Uh-huh. I mean, that was the, that was the slap and Janet for Cyclops. Yeah. Yep. So I guess being a Cyclops fan, like I look at the other ending and I'm like, well, that would save us all of that. But then we wouldn't get cool Inferno and, you know, I, like, you know, I, I was kind of sympathetic towards Cyclops until he had the kid. I mean, when, like when he, his heart wasn't really in that relationship and he's just like going along. Yeah. And I, you see that happen every day, you know, it, in the real world, that stuff happens. And clones, clones don't make good. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to say I didn't feel bad for Madeline. Right. Um, because I did. But you, I mean, you knew from the beginning his heart wasn't really in it. Right. And when he bails on the kid, that really sucks. But, um, I mean, how do you not go to Gene? How do you not go to Gene? He, he was, he thought he was going to Gene by going to Madeline in the first place. That's True. what's so weird about it. Right. It made everything so convoluted. It made right. Rachel's origin so convoluted. It made yeah. all that, and it really started the confusing aspect of the X-Men. Yeah. You know? I really oh. dug it as a kid though. I mean, the whole, the, Rachel's angst about what this means for her. I loved all that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, there was some great stuff that, that, came about because of it but i mean steve's right like this is where yeah shit starts <laughs> goes to off go the rails. south like yeah and it's weird to know because that was always my concern about doing this was was like jerry knows that like i'm a big fan of like not seeing behind the curtain 
because once you know how sausage is made, you know. Yeah. Well, good night, everybody. I'm glad you had me. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. And, and like, I love it, too, because it makes me look at everything differently and, and slightly in a way, like, moves a little bit of the weight emotionally off of some of the stuff, but shifts it into different places. Yeah. We're, like, right. now, instead of reading the story and, like, getting what I get out of the story every time that I read it, like, re- like Your before you would read it like a history book. Like, this actually happened. Exactly. This is the only way this story could have happened. And with, like, your knowledge, Steve, and, and you guys being able to, like, for the both of you to be interested in that aspect of it is really interesting for me. Because now I can sit here and be like, well, what would the X-Men have been like had it ended that way and gone that way in 150? Yeah. And it, like, adds a whole other layer. I love that they gave us the opportunity to explore that in printed form. Like, they didn't just bury it. Too, I think it's, I mean, I've read that untold, uh, story, the interview, uh, and, I mean, it's hard to get through parts of it because you can tell that there's definitely some, I mean, it's a behind the music of the Dark Phoenix saga, like, you know. And, um, I find that to be interesting too, that it's, we, we rarely now, for as close as we are to the creators and the people who make them, you know, being able to talk to them on Twitter or Facebook or email them or see them at conventions, like that's probably the most honest that you're because mm-hmm. now it's like, no, 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 we've got to, you know, there there is a wall, even though they're just a, a click away to be able to talk to them or ask them a question. But like this is like emotions laid bare with like Byrne and Claremont both having different, you know. I also like that in thinking of the end of, uh, how it was the Phoenix Saga was supposed to end here um, is that in '81, um, so I guess it was later that year, or the next year. Phoenix Saga is '80, the end of Phoenix Saga. Yeah, I think or, so. Um, but what if number 27, which was written by Mary Jo Duffy, art by Jerry Bingham, whose stuff I really like. Um, I never thought that he got enough uh, work, um, and inks by John Stewart, who I never heard of uh, afterwards, with a Frank. The- yeah, right. <laughs> the who? Uh, and the Frank Miller cover. And they do the original ending. Um, and then they show why that wouldn't have turned out so well as uh, what-ifs uh, so often do. But you get to mm-hmm. see the Phoenix take down Terax and, like, make Galactus kind of ticked off at her. And it kind of ends like Byrne thought that she would go bad again and the cycle would start again. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of crossed with like a little Korvac saga moment at the end where she's like taking each one of them out one at a time and it's kind of emotional. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. Check it out. It's been in one of those uh, What If Classics uh, reprint trade paperbacks too. Nice. How cool would it have been to have been like to a dinner party when they were like thinking this up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, shooter... sitting around in their fucking seventies style Art Deco living room, Weezy <laughs> Simonson, Waltz there, Chris Claremont's there, Burns there. Like, just think about how much fun their dinner table conversation must have been. Yeah, you know. Well, Burns couldn't around... have been there because he lived in Calgary. Okay, but um, they did have a meeting. I remember Shooter talking about it on his blog, saying uh, he he was. At a dinner at a Chinese restaurant that was in the same building as the Marvel offices with Claremont and maybe Stern talking about what was going to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. 
I think that aspect of, like, the behind-the-curtain stuff is really cool. Just that, like, here's these three adult dudes that are, like, arguing over the fate of the galaxy over fucking wontons. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Happens all the time. I remember a certain um, Spider-Man villain who had a future live Spider-Man's body was also discussed over dinner. Yeah? At a convention. Yep. I like, too, that this storyline was the catalyst for bringing Louise Jones, uh, uh, then Louise Simonson, uh, into the X-Men fold, where she would reside and tend garden for years and years, both editing and writing. Thank God. She does not get enough credit. That woman... She was on to Ron LaFeld from the (laughs) get-go. We only listened. That always cracks me up when she was like, they just don't care. Uh, you're standing in Doctor Strange houses, and on the outside there's a circular window, and on the inside it's square, and I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's a good lady. I like her. Very good if you can catch up with her at a con, too. She's very uh, gracious uh, and happy to talk. And they've both got film credits to their name now. <laughs> oh, yeah? And the first Thor... Um, they are sitting in between Volstag and Sif. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. I completely missed that. Yeah. Wow. They pan them so you can see them in their robes and they're eating dinner mm-hmm. with all the... in Asgard. Well, Walter, I'm sure, would fit right in with that big old beard. Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, I'm sad. I know, it's a real downer note to end on. Maybe we'll give you a little Magic 8-Ball with Gene's Essence in it, too, for your shelf. Yeah. Oh, man. You know what I need? I need to mention Emma Frost one more time. That old bitch! (laughs) (laughs) That'll make me feel better. Uh, Yeah, that makes me feel better, too. Good job. Um, This truly was an epic saga. A tale of woe. Yeah. Love lost. Everything's going to be different for the podcast from here on out, Jerry. Yeah. This is what we've been building towards, and now we've got to pick up the pieces. We've been building towards a tale of... Whoa! <laughs> uh, yeah, man, so uh begin the downward spiral of suckage. No. That is the... <laughs> no, there's Just awesome kidding. stuff coming up. But the, the, the brood... Oh, I know. I know. There's there's still another 70 awesome issues. Bob McCloud. Paul Smith. Come on. Do you think the return of Cockrum was the same as his first run? I get awesome. to I get to read New Mutant the first time. Yeah, ever. you do. Those Cockrum return issues were great. Yeah. All right. Definitely. The hope for the brutes. That was awesome. I'm looking You'll forward see. to reading him again. I don't know why, but in my head. Brood was uh, Smith. I guess it, they first, split it, right? His first was the double-sized issue that ended the whole Brood saga. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get there. One Call me when you get to the annuals. <laughs> We've got to be coming up on annual number four. Soon. You right over the Brood of the uh, Badoon one, didn't you? No, because we've only had number three. And, right. and Nightcrawler's Inferno is number four. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm, tra- I'm trying to keep track. That's number five. We're not there yet. Yeah. It's coming. Badoon. Nightcrawler's Inferno. 
You know, we sh- we probably should have mentioned the Badoon one on our ga- oh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy episode. It yeah. is. He's, it is the issue after the Toys R Us special. Yeah. He'd be tripping, Steve. So next episode. <laughs> we're going to have to make a phone call to you, Steve. <laughs> You're going to come on for the come 10 minutes. One demand. <laughs> yep. More previously on X-Men featuring Steve Raker. <laughs> Sponsored by the podcast. Sponsored by no one. Cry for the Moon Productions. Cry for the Moon Productions. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Pleasure. For answering the call when we needed you. And for having vast knowledge. Seriously, how do you keep all that in there? I feel like I'm losing all of it, right? I feel like I never had it. And you're just, man... He's living it. He's passing it on to the next generation. Not just to his own kids, but to everyone's kids. You're like the Rigelian recorder. That, you, you know, know you just, just think of the children. <laughs> I believe the children are our future. <laughs> um, we, yeah, we really appreciate you doing this for us. And I, I feel like if I'm ever about to lose control of what's the beast inside of me, you'll be there on my blue area of the moon. To deliver the coup de gras. With an alternate ending, if needed. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Steve. Thank, thank you, you Sean. Thanks, Jerry. Goodbye. Do you remember the time when you were gone from Mars? I don't know if you knew that. Oh, it's definitely playing cards and you were in Tim and cigars. And she never told me her name. I still love you to go from Sitting in a dreamy days by the water's edge On a cool summer night Fireflies and stars in the sky Time to blow a light From your cigarette The breeze blowing softly on the face Reminds me of something else Something that in my Yeah.